Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this Book at Lunchtime event. Book at Lunchtime is, as regulars will know, Torch's flagship event series, taking the form of fortnightly, bite-sized book discussions with a range of commentators. In normal times, we'd be offering you sandwiches as well. Today, we're offering you food for thought. Please do take a look at our website and newsletter for the full program for next term, and I'll come back at the end of today's event about the very next uh, gig in the series. My name is Wes Williams. I'm the director here at Torch. Um, I'm also a professor of French literature with a specialism in precisely the period uh, that we'll be discussing today. I'm therefore especially delighted to welcome my colleague, Professor Neil Kenny, to speak about his book on Born to, on Born to Write, Literary Families and Social Hierarchy in Early Modern France. Also on the panel to ask him questions about it and also to have their own say about this book are Professor Kerry Sullivan and Professor Caroline Warman, who will be chairing the discussion. Just a few words about the book, first of all. Born to Write is a study of the intersection between family and social hierarchy within early modern literary production, especially in France. From fiction to philosophy, from poetry to history, the, the, the scope is vast and works of all kinds emerged from and through not only individual authors and publishers, but also what Neil strikingly calls the family function. But maybe I imagine we'll hear more about that later. In a moment, I'll hand over to Professor Warman, who will fully introduce the book and the rest of the panel. This will be followed by a brief reading by Neil Kenny. After this, our commentators will present their thoughts on the book, coming at it from their particular disciplines. We'll then give Neil the chance to respond to some of the points raised before we enter into what promises to be a fascinating discussion. The event will then conclude with questions from you, the audience. So please do put them into the question and answer function at the bottom of your screen. We're gonna try and get all of this done within the next hour. So pretty much uh, I better get a move on. And all that's left for me to do is to thank you all for coming and to introduce briefly our chair. Um, Caroline Warman, who might like to come on screen now, is a professor of French thought and literature here at Oxford University. She's president of the British Society for 18th Century Studies. She specializes in the circulation of ideas and materialist thought, and amongst her many publications has recently completed a book on Diderot called The Atheist's Bible, Diderot and the Elements de Physiologie. I'll hand over to you now, Caroline, and disappear from your screens for a while. Thank you very much, Wes, and it's absolutely exciting to be here to talk about um, this book. Um, let me first of all introduce Neil Kenny and then Kerry Sullivan um, before we move over to hear directly um, from Neil uh, some of the real stuff, the pages um, that he's actually written. Um, and then, uh, yeah, um, I and, and Kerry will. Um, We'll, we'll give our responses. So Professor Neil Kenny is a professor of French at Oxford University, a senior research fellow at All Souls College and a lead fellow for languages at the British Academy. Thank you, Neil. He specializes in early modern French literature and thought, especially from the early 16th to the mid 17th century. His current focus is on the relation of literature and learning to social hierarchy and previous projects have investigated different kinds of knowledge and belief. So Professor Kerry Sullivan is Professor of Literature at Cardiff University and the author of five books on the literary features that structure early modern texts about religion, trade, bureaucracy and rhetoric. She is the general editor of the English Association series Essays and Studies and her most recent publication is Shakespeare and the play scripts of private prayer. So um, on that, may I ask you, um, Neil, to um, give us, um, to read out um, a section from your book. Certainly, thanks very much, Caroline and Wes, and also Kerry for kindly participating in, in this event. So, so th this book is, is part of a wider research programme on the class dimension or, or the social hierarchy dimension of early modern literature and learning. Um, and that um, dimension has been studied in relation to Europe in, in a seminar at All Souls College to which many 
people have contributed this past decade. And, and that Europe-wide focus is, is maintained in a collective, a volume, collective volume due to appear next year with the British Academy. But, but, but this book, um, Born to Write, examines the vast question through um, more specific angles. So one country, one social unit, and just one facet of literature and learning, namely the production of works defined fairly broadly. Um, so this is uh, the first of two extracts is from the preface. Ever more is known about the lives and social conditions of early modern writers in Europe in general and in France in particular. They were lives dominated by class or to put it less anachronistically by social hierarchy. But we still understand relatively little about the relation of social hierarchy to the works of literature and learning produced in this period or, or indeed any other. The, the present study is intended to contribute to our understanding of that relation by focusing on one dimension of it, the role played by families. So the literary families of the subtitle are those that spawned more than one producer of literary and or learned works. Many other families um, were, of course, literary in the broader sense of including more than one member who was knowledgeable about literature or learning, but, but they're not the focus here. First, part one, I connect the, so this is a quick, still this extract, just summarizing what's in the book really. First part one, I connect the production of works of literature and learning to the broader picture of heredity, inheritance, and familial transmission in the Ancien Regime. Secondly, part two, I quantify the role of literary families within that production and I map it onto the social hierarchy of France from the late 15th to the mid 17th century. And I survey the ways in which family shaped the production of works. Then part three shows how even in the period itself, some people surveyed the whole field of literature and learning in ways that gave prominence to the role of families within it. Then finally, Parts four and five, I return to the starting point through two case studies, and they're, they're on the, the Mavel family and the Behoald stroke Berville family. So the second extract, and a little bit abridged, gives, tries to give a, a flavour of uh, some of the protagonists of the book. What kind of familial ties were there between literary producers who came from the same family? The two most common types of ties were between fathers and sons occasionally including illegitimate ones, and between brothers. In a few cases, they were between a sister and a brother, between mothers and daughters, not just the, the Desroches, but also Marguerite de Navarre, her daughter Jeanne d'Albray, and the latter's daughter, Catherine de Bourbon, um, plus the case of Gabrielle de Poignard and her daughters, or um, between fathers and daughters, so Hilaire and Suzanne Caillet, or Jean and Madeleine Dora, Charles and Nicole Etienne. There seem, on the other hand, to be virtually no instances of a son becoming a literary producer when his mother was one, but not his father. It was also much rarer for both parents of a literary producer child to be literary producers themselves. But it did happen in at least one case that of Camille de Morel, daughter of Antoine, Antoinette de Luanne and Jean de Morel. On the other hand, they were not the only husband and wife literary producer pair. There were at least eight others. Um, factors that seem to have favoured both members of a married couple being literary producers include Protestantism and especially nobility. While on the face of it, the closest ties between literary producer relatives were thus between parents, children, and spouses. In many cases, the relevant ties were between cousins of differing degrees, uncles and nephews, occasionally nieces, grandparents or great-grandparents and their descendants, or great-uncles and theirs. Many of these ties were explicitly or implicitly significant to the literary production of the two or more relevant parties concerned as were alliances of marriage rather than of blood, at which point I'll stop. Thanks.
thank you very much, Neil. Um, so let me, um, I, I can be heard, can't I? I hope that I can be heard. Thank you very much. And so what I'm, what I'm about to, to read follows on, I think, and sort of confirms what it is that you've just heard, what this book shows via exceptionally careful research in archives and bibliographies, via rigorously weighed definitions, number crunching and sociological and statistical analysis is that from the late 15th to the mid 17th century, at least one in five literary producers, probably more, was from a family of literary producers. Analyzing the phenomenon anthropologically, Neil draws out the family's practice of hunting in packs. Looking at the content of what these families produce, he shows that much of this family literature comes from the question of heraldry and the question of nobility in general. Neil concludes that the, the producers of family literature constituted a crucial, if overlooked, building block in the emergent edifice of national literary history, overlooked in favour of our modern focus on the author function and what Neil will call variously free-floating atoms or atomized individuals. That this is the case, that Neil has incontrovertibly established it, is not in doubt, and the exactitude of the scholarship we encounter on reading his book is one of its many pleasures. There are quite a few passages I'd have liked to read out, along with their underpinning footnotes, to show you this exemplary erudition in the raw, as it were, but time forces me forwards. Um, in sum, Neil is showing that the term literary producer, as he's in fact just said, covers editors, re-editors, translators, compilers of different sorts, as well as authors, and that not all of them wish to distinguish themselves as individuals from their other family members, although Neil tracks them uh, extremely carefully. And all of the cases he looks at, whether concerning famous and less famous literary producers, um, are very richly detailed, they're curious, they're sometimes hilarious, or they're hair-raising. So am I falling into a trap set by the book for readers in search of sensation if I draw your attention to the fact that Neil has uncovered a murder that's been hiding in plain sight all this time? In Mathieu Berwald's manuscript family book, now in the BNF, uh, Mathieu writes in Latin as follows, and I'm quoting Neil's translation. My mother Jeanne Flust from Gamache died when I barely knew her, when my father, either by accident or because of my mother's infidelity, cut her vein or rather her artery. He was a barber surgeon. Neil modestly continues that this extraordinary statement has not previously been remarked upon to his knowledge. I'm utterly taken aback by all of this, partly by the sudden drama in the archives, the sort of thing Natalie Zeman Davis has drawn our attention to, partly by Mathieu's contrastingly pedantic and explanatory tone. It's not the vein, it's the artery. His father was a bar barber surgeon, which was why he would have been tinkering around with veins or arteries. I'm also taken aback by the way in which Neil takes care not to let this drama get out of hand. It has its place, and that place is carefully embedded in a multi-layered demonstration and analysis. Neil's caveat, moreover, is that this passage had not been noticed before to his knowledge. This is why we trust Neil. He's careful. He won't get things out of proportion or make claims that he isn't sure are true, even when, or especially when, those claims are dynamite as indeed the whole book is. In that vein, therefore, let us return to the claims of the book as a whole. If, as quoted before, producers of family literature constituted a crucial, if overlooked, building block in the emergent edifice of national literary history, what are the implications for our understanding of this same literary history as scholars, historians, and teachers? Should we think more about the extent to which literary production is revealed to be a tool for the reinforcement of social status? Do we need to redefine literature? And what do we do with our anxious questions about elitism, whereby what we do as academics is revealed ever more clearly to be tightly connected, not just to the elite, but to its replication? 
Perhaps one answer, as we discover from your book, is that we need to understand much better what elite means. The sensation I had from reading it was not one of the complacent replication of privilege, but of constant instability. This also was surprising. But I don't want to end with those questions. I want to return to the research. I noticed, of course, what Neil said about it being, I quote, likely that the production of works from within families of literary producers continued to be salient, especially up to the revolution, though that would need to be verified by further research. So I did some thinking with my 18e hat on and I have some 18th century examples for you to comment on. One which is a literary work which thinks about the question of family, family structures and social status. And another which is a case of, family, of a family of literary producers that very much, I think, fits your model. So the first case is Diderot's um, Rameau's nephew, written in the 1760s and 1770s. Um, so you talk in your book, Neil, about the ferment in thinking about social status of the period you're looking at. And this work also expresses and explores that ferment. With the Neuve de Hameau, of course, you've got the issue in the title, the nephew, the grandson, the descendant more generally, and neatly the two towering achievers discussed in relation to their families in this work, the composer Rameau and the playwright Hassine, both have tree names, branch and root, which helpfully underscore the family tree aspect of the discussion. And specifically what Diderot is exploring in relation to them is how inadequate Rameau and Hassine were in terms of supporting their families. This perhaps moves away from what Neil is looking at towards something more connected to virtue. But in the case of Rameau, the nephew himself is an artistic producer, if not a literary one, and not in a prestigious genre. He produces mimes. And the instability of his social status and the concomitant necessity of toadying is a perpetual theme in the book. Perhaps one might add also that Diderot's daughter counts as a literary producer under Neil's definition, as she wrote a life of her father and was also literary controller and withholder of his archive. I was wondering if this is a new aspect of what Neil calls the family function. And when does this aspect, which continues to this day in literary estates, commence? With the Pascal family? So my second case is an awkward one, yet in many ways it fits perfectly. An uncle who writes a famous study that in many ways is genealogical and compilatory, grafting its already ancient warrior noble family onto an even more glorious literary past. Plus a nephew who's certainly a very well-known writer. So I'm talking, of course, about the Abbé de Sade, who wrote a much reprinted and translated study of Petrarch and his ancestor Laure de Sade, supposedly Petrarch's Laura, and about his nephew, Donatien Alphonse François Marquis de Sade, the author of a number of famous works that you have probably heard of. The Abbé de Sade's Mémoire pour la vie de François Petrarque came out in 1764, was instantly popular. There were four original French copies in Oxford alone, not counting the abridged and also very popular translation by Mrs. Dobson, which went into seven editions by 1807. Certain preoccupations Neil identifies as recurrent across his corpus of family literature, that is the focus on nobility and its warrior values on establishing status are just as present in the work of the Abbé de Sade's nephew. One might say, that the violence of warrior class values finds renewed expression in Saad's work. Neil talks of the social prestige of violence, and certainly this is what the Saadian heroes emanate and embody in the most literal way. One might say that having lost the prestige of his nobility, Saad through imprisonment, right, and then the revolution, Saad sought to replace that lost prestige by becoming a literary producer. Would he have become a writer without the example of his famous uncle, cherished friend of Voltaire and Emilie du Châtelet? Are the Saad family in fact the perfect example of Neil's thesis? One might even say current members of the Saad family are still demonstrating the unpredictable power of the family function. Thibaut de Saad, one of the brothers of the current head of the family, wrote a postgraduate thesis on his ancestor entitled La lecture politique de l'idéologie du Marquis de Sade, 1982, 
which probably has added to his status in one way or another. While the Saad family in general make energetic capital, both cultural and financial out of the writings of their forebear. So in sum, I'd love to hear whether Neil thinks these 18th century cases are in a clear continuity with the earlier period he looks at or not, or something else again. In any case, Neil, many thanks for this opportunity to engage with your work. And what I'll do now is ask Kerry to um, come on and tell um, and talk about what she's her thoughts. Thank you very much. Thanks, Caroline. Um, I found three areas of Neil's analysis of particular interest. I come from English literary criticism. Firstly, the idea that the family is a cognitive gadget. Then the idea of the family as a collaborative narrative, which is never finished. And finally, a sort of contrast with the English situation where you get quite a lot of metaphorical families being claimed. So the first, uh, the family as cognitive gadget. It, it, you're probably aware of the buzz there is at the moment about the extended mind, the idea that both the human mind and its environment cause cognitive processing, so should have parity of status. Uh, cognition is not a brain-bound activity, but unevenly distributed across social, technological and biological realms. Now, we can all get behind that. I mean, if you look behind Neil, for instance, you'll see his mind behind him. It's all laid out in little piles behind and is, is, is uh, on his cupboard and his desk. So we'll all have a good look at Neil's mind when he switches his camera on. So easy that. But what we don't have often is case studies of how cognitive tasks can be distributed by a system. So we've got ideas about how it works for an individual, but very few case studies about um, a system doing it. In English, we've got Evelyn Trivell um, doing it for the globe, but this is, this, you know, this is, this is, there's so few, and here we've got one. So here we've got Neil scoping family histories as a cognitive ethnographer. Uh, he's showing how the extended family acted as an extended mind. And specifically, what he's showing is three things, how they actually, that actually changes the texts. Firstly, collaboration between authors from different generations tends to call out a content-led preoccupation about how the work started with the family and travelled out and it's seen as the child of the family and given messages to the world outside. If the child is legitimate, it's respectfully, it talks in a register which is respectfully didactic, and if it's illegitimate, um, it's satirical. Then the notion that family collectives produced works rather than individuals tended to encourage those people who collaborated to think big on the assumption that they'd start it and somebody else would, would finish it. Well, keep it going. Uh, keepy uppy, really. It's intellectual keepy uppy amongst a family. Um, uh, and what you get is such hopes being registered in extensive paratexts, uh, laying out this transgender gender, gen, generational relationship. And then finally, um, collective collaborative creation tended to create a sort of bricolage very often. So that's what, Nicola, um, uh, uh, what Neil's showing, um, where stuff is exerted and rearranged and reassembled. It's like constantly fiddling. So I was really into this. I, oh, I love extended mind. This is massive case study, really great. And then I, I started getting a bit itchy. So this is the second angle. This is the sense of the family as a narrative itself. Now, each family's myth, as we all know from our own families, has affordances. You can do certain sites of interpretation, say certain things, um, or you can't. Um, being one of the tellers of those histories allows writers to place themselves as narratives of the story and as characters in it. Now, um, obviously, that, oh, no, that's, that's, oh, that's a great idea. Neil, great, great, great idea, great idea. Um, and then he said, yeah, well, the problem is that means the work is never finished. There was always stuff to be done on the family texts, ed updating, editing, imitating, co-authoring, translating, prefacing, God. And there's always work to be done on using the texts outside the family, new dedications to other patrons, commenting on them in a new political situation, what have you. So the material, he says, is free for heirs to upcycle at will. Well, now I started getting twitchy now. <laughs> This unending reworking of a text as reader becomes writer, becomes character. I mean, I know we're supposed to murmur wistfully with Yeats, uh, how can we know the dancer from the dance? But I've always found it very easy to tell from my seat in the stalls. Um, I pay, they move, and then we all go home. Um, there's a move in English literature at the moment to rewrite the classics. 
the critical creative movement, I'm so contemptuous of this, I can't tell you, um, which spices up pride and prejudice with a few zombies. Um, okay, there are more sophisticated versions of it, but um, Neil's work how shows how horribly free literary heirs felt to claim they were acting with the deepest respect towards their literary forebears, while reanimating the remains in order to dominate them. In other words, I think what he's showing us is an uncanny, the uncanny aspect of family piety, that class of the frightening, which leads back to what is known of old and long familiar. Now my third point. This I think is a difference between the English and the French situations, or maybe it's just an area that, that's, uh, that, that's not what, what Neil's commenting on. So, um, English writers at the time regularly create metaphorical families for themselves from previous writers. Well, we've all done that. We, you know, <laughs> the orphan fantasy. Uh, you're not my parents, um, but English writers do it. So, take for instance the loop loose group of poets, playwrights, and literati around Johnson, Ben Johnson, who call themselves the tribe or sons of Ben. Now, some are intimate with him personally, meeting so regularly in the 1620s in the Apollo room of the Devil and St Dunstan Tavern on Fleet Street, that they even get their society's sociable rules painted on the, on the wall, so re real regulars. Others though, while not knowing Johnson personally, were so heavily influenced by his philosophy and style that they also called themselves Sons of Ben. And the group includes playwrights like Richard Broome and William Davenant and poets like Thomas Carey and uh, Robert Herrick. Johnson celebrates his gatherings in an epistle answering to one that asked to be sealed of the tribe of Ben, where he says his friends must be trustworthy, loyal, and convivial. And in return, his literary sons wrote poems celebrating this paternity, such as Thomas Randall's poem, a gratulatory to Master Ben Johnson for his adopting of him to be his son, and Lucius Carey's two poetic epistles to his noble father. Such fantasy families are conspicuously cross-class, so I'd like to hear do they exist in the early modern French literary scene? And how might members of a bloodline literary family respond to the English sense that the family can also be an imaginative creation that crosses um, rather than enforces social boundaries? Go for it, Neil. Thank you very much, Kerry. And, um, and uh, I think, Kerry, in fact, you might want to keep your, um, yeah, yeah, come back so that um, we, can, we can look beadily at Neil as he, <laughs> he begins to respond to some of the things that we've been talking about. Yeah, Neil, over to you. Thank you so much, both of you. I'm feeling very uh, self-conscious here with all my gadgets <laughs> and uh, bits of my mind around me, but, um, but both for um, really actually teaching me a lot, reflecting back a lot with, with interest. So it really have given me a lot of extra stuff to think about, um, putting some points better than I have done in the book, actually. So thank you very much, plus adding some. And and um, it's good um, that I, I had my um, camera and mic off, because you also managed to make me laugh out loud in a very, very, uh, very amused way, because they're, they're, they're very challenging and very, very, you know, very funny points as well. Um, but I, I cannot do justice to them all, but, but here goes. So um, Caroline, uh, again, you put it you know, better than me, drama in the archives with that murder. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a very um, exciting discovery, one that I neurotically checked with a whole bunch of Latinists who are, whose Latin is better than mine to imagine, to, to make sure I'm not imagining things. Um, and I think, you know, in the context of this book, um, it, it's, it's, it's sort of there in the, in the detail. Um, and so it doesn't take over everything. But, but I think I, I'm glad that you picked up on it, because for me, it's one of the more exciting points of the research. And actually, um, through connections with a um, research group that's interested in literature and trauma, I did, did have the opportunity to, I hadn't published that, but to, to present it in a more um, sort of let, letting rip format, really, to, to explore what is, I think, in that case, a, 
a very, very indirectly felt and expressed trauma that runs on uh, for a couple of generations, from, from whether from the murder or from the uncertainty as to whether it was a murder or, or a mixture of, of those two. So thank you for that. Um, on the question of what is an elite, you know, that's absolutely key question. And I'm not gonna sit here and pronounce what an elite is, because I, I think it really, it's one of those ordinary language terms. It totally depends on what context or purpose you're, you're using it, it for. But I simply would say that, although um, I, I, you're absolutely accurate in saying that nobility is a big part of this. And then there might be, again, with, I don't know whether with England sort of contrastive points because the nobility was much wider, much more numerous than, than say the, the English aristocracy. In, in, in France. <laughs> um, so a lot of this is going on in nobility. I think I estimate roughly 40% of these literary producers from families of literary producers were noble in one way or another. But that, that does still leave the other 60, 60%. So um, still elite in the sense of, um, my, my argument is that th this, this, this phenomenon of, of family literature actually happens on the whole at an even higher level than literary learning was happening in general. I, I think that, that's, that's a probable conclusion, not a definite one. <clears throat> but despite yeah. that, there were quite a lot of, 60% you know, of commoners involved in it. A lot of them on the cusp of the nobility, trying to get in there, um, but, but, um, but some of them not. And one, one particular group actually that often had humble-ish humble origins was that of sort of regents, tutors, secretaries, and, and, and so on. Um, that was a group that was very difficult for contemporaries to place socially because of its reliance on this extent of its, unusually new extent of its reliance on literature and learning for its status. So people weren't quite sure what, what to make of that. Um, and, and in terms of the um, incredible instability, social instability, a kind of uh, melting pots that, that you, um, talked about again absolutely I suppose I'd qualify that by saying that you know as as you know, any historians um, constantly remind us nonetheless this was an extremely hierarchical society in which the vast majority of people could not move from the the, the status into which they'd been born however you define that whether as the father's status or, or whatever it was but the vast majority of people that was not possible so I think you perhaps get um, a lot of this, this ferment is particularly on the cusp of certain crossover points in particular actually on, on the cusp of crossing over into the nobility that group of office holders often just below um, but, you know buying offices and, and, and so on and sometimes becoming noble so there was a lot lot of movement around there but even that movement um, slowed down I think as you got further into the 17th century, and, and we're, we're, the, the sort of barriers came up quite quite a bit. Having said that, the um, the 18th century examples are absolutely brilliant. I, I say having said that because we're still on the question of ferments and mobility with the Didier example, you know, fa fantastic example, and and yes, yeah, so, so I I think both your my short answer is yes, both fit the bill in new ways entirely, and I think that that that. Hamel's nephew shows that illustrates that problem that recurs again and again in, 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 in this book, which is that of, okay, there was this whole system there, but it was really hard to pull it off. And typically families would only pull it off for two or perhaps three generations. And then you'd get, particularly in some social groups, disintegration and evaporation of all that, using literature and learning to get the social leg up and back to where you were before or even lower so I think that's 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 really common um and I suppose you know whether Diderot's daughter again absolutely fundamental to it really important whether that's part of the family function or in my parlance or the family literature um certainly it's part of family literature because that family literature I use simply to mean where there was some kind of um real collaboration, co-working, whatever it, or coinciding at different production by different people within the family. With family function, I'm suggesting using that when to, to pinpoint the attributing of the 
of that agency to a family or to family members. So in other words, you could have a lot of things going on, but they're not visible, they're below the radar of the family function, which like the author function for Foucault is, is that act of attributing whatever the underlying realities are. So there's two things at the, the level of representation of actual attributing this work is I've helped with this work and it's by my grandfather, but done it. But then there's the more silent stuff, which often the, the women would, would be involved in a lot as well, that might not come under the family function because it's, it's not attributed, um, but it's still absolutely part of what I'm calling family literature. So I'm trying to distinguish between those terms to, to capture that sort of distinction. Um, and, and yeah, that's a sad example. I, I didn't know, that's, that's incredible. Um, and, and, and I love the fact that Thibaut de Sade, um, and this perhaps feeds into um, Kerry's um, anxieties about it. Uh, Thibaut de Sade is still getting his own control in 1982, writing his thesis over the whole business for his own completely separate um, purposes by telling us all what exactly all this, all this stuff done by his ancestors meant. So I, I think that that, that illustrates for me nicely the point as well that the, 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 the family function, just like the author function for Foucault, is not something that is just a historical phenomenon came to an end. It's something that continues into the present, whether we choose to attribute works to authors, to families, to, to neither of them. It's something that you can't really separate modern scholarship, current scholarship from. It's, it's a continuing process. And, and, and carry on to your other points. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally um, like your sort of interpreting what I was doing in terms of extended mind, that although I used cognitive framework to some extent, I didn't particularly um, explicitly use extended mind, but I think that works very well to describe what I've been trying to do. I do use a bit more of the, the concept of affordances, um, which, which you mentioned um, as, as, as well. <laughs> and um, I think that, um, Yes, so, so that I think that there's an inherent kind of future-facing openness in, in all this material generated by families, whether they're trying to control or not how future generations, including their own family, use it. It's, it's de facto, it's, 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 it's open and does get skewed and used for subsequent generations' purposes constantly. I suppose to, to try and, um, and I, I love your um, characterization of, of that, Kind of sinister con control that might take earlier material produced from the family way away from its original intended purpose. For example, Protestant stuff used by Catholic descendant or, or vice versa and so on, um, as, as an uncanny, as horribly free as an uncanny aspect of family piety and, and the class of the frightening. I, I think that really brings out its, its energy and its real dynamism re really really well, much better than I've done actually. But, but I, I suppose I'd say that <clears throat> someone can always come along and try to get them by falsifying some of the claims, for example. So there's always that vulnerability in the later uses that a claim to nobility can be falsified, if you like. So it doesn't diffuse entirely these um, free, often very self-regarding, subsequent recycling of family material, but they, they can have their own points of vulnerability and so on. And, and in terms of your, 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 um, your metaphors, familiar metaphors in particularly England and, and the tribal or sons of Ben, for, for Ben Johnson, I, I think that's absolutely fascinating. Again, I suppose I'd, I'd, I'd myself situate that sort of phenomenon in the realm of what I call other collectivities that impinge upon family or contiguous with it, whether household or or institutional college-based, or those those networks, and and, and so on. But, um, there, though, though, I suppose what's different about this is the sons of Ben, but the strong metaphorical connection. So there's a much stronger thing, which I suppose you do get a little bit with with phrases like la familia for for a household as, as well. You do get that metaphorical extension that might include household secretaries and, and so on in other directions as well. I don't know of other examples. I don't know whether other people on the on on, on the call do. I'd be really interested to know. For France, for example, of, of that, the, the, the French equivalent of the tribal sons of Ben in, in that way. I suppose the, the, the um, closest kind of example might be in the book, something like one of my two biggest case studies, 
um, Mathieu Berwald, who was the, 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 the um, son of the probable murderer, and his, his having given up on the probable murderer, he, he gets um, adopted within a college institutional homosocial framework uh, setting by this very leading scholar, Vatab. And, and, you know, it's, and he's not really calling him his father, but there's a kind of quasi-son thing going on there. So you do get that sort of thing there. And you imagine that was probably quite common in colleges. And it may, again, in a comparative, I'll stop in a minute, but in a comparative perspective, looking across Europe, perhaps the extent of that varied, depending on how important colleges were culturally and, and in, in education. So, so perhaps more in some countries, like Germany and, and, and the low countries than in, than in France, where there were colleges, but not quite the same, same cultural importance. And the, the really final thought on that is that perhaps in a sense, it'd be interesting to ask medievalists, are there many medieval um, tribal sons of Ben or whatever he was called in the Middle Ages? Because the, the phenomenon I've been trying to describe is, is a fairly historically new one in some respects because of this thing about scholars suddenly being able to marry and whether because they're, they're, they're Protestants or because the, the figure of the lay married scholar became much more of a possibility um, than it had been through, through so much of the Middle Ages. So there you can imagine that, 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 so that, that twin transmission of you know, procreation, but also transmission within the family became much more of an intense interlocking thing in, in, this, in this humanistic period. And then it had often been in in the in the monastery. I'll stop there. Thanks very much again. Thank you, Neil. What an amazing series of you know coherent responses to our many points. Um, Kerry, um, would you like to come back to something? I I I seemed I, I I could see that you were having some thoughts. I could see your your mind was was doing a lot of stuff. <laughs> That's right. Neil, tidy your desk. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> right. Um, in English, we spend a lot of time looking about non-manuscript publication. You know, it's now equivalent to book publication or at any rate, it's, it's going for the right group of people, um, the influential group of people. Um, given manuscripts are cheaper to produce than published books, does would your conclusions about social mobility and um, about the way these are being used to shove a family into the limelight. Would that be varied um, if you considered manuscript publication as well? Um, in other words, would you have more a, a wider range of people from different social classes or maybe from different genders, I mean, both genders, um, uh, uh, attempting to do that shove. I'm sure that's right. And the, the, the um, I mean, there, there's so many dimensions of this that, that one could definitely pursue and that's absolutely one of them. I, sh I should just, I suppose, just clarify that in, in I'd said works is, is quite broadly defined. And so I absolutely mean manuscript works amongst those. So, so this is not, confined to, to, to print. Um, but it's true that a lot of my examples and case studies are more print-based. Um, but it'd be great to look at the, so in other words, in counting, doing the counting, the quantifying aspect of it, I have you know, included a manuscript work um, destined for some kind of, seems apparently destined for some kind of even very limited circulation as a work in my, by my, criteria. Um, and, and, and one example of, 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 of an access along which one could look at this, actually at the top end, at the really elite end, would be um, Caroline mentioned genealogies. So that, that it's true that there's this vogue for shifting from the, the manuscript genealogies that a lot of, you know, quite grand noble families kept, shifting those into print much, much more in the 17th century. So that doesn't exactly answer your question. But I think that 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 shows there's a lot of work to do about the uh, changing access relations between print and manuscript on this point. But it doesn't really answer your question because I don't know the answer to it actually about the extent to which really looking in detail at examples of manuscript works 
um, might take you into a wider social range. I, I'm sure it would for women. I'm absolutely sure it would for women. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you 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 talk very well about the um, Marguerite de Navarre and her her ve the very limited um, number of manuscript copies, and so being able to read her work meant proximity to her which is proximity to the queen so that that's a very neat example of that i suppose it it changes over time um i see that in the in the chat so dave dave Possels has has put an example in um for us of les femmes savantes with trisotin and vadius as potential sons <laughs> That's a very nice idea. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose my only the only sort of follow up question that that I'd like to sort of ask while I while I can before opening up to the to the audience generally is, do you think we ought to teach differently? Teach some of these sorts of what sort of teach in relation to what you're revealing here, sort of so that a fifth, let's say, of the works that we're teaching from the early modern period are from the from these from these families, these literary families, family literature. Or not. That, that would be that would be great, I think. Um, but I think a couple of sort of examples from sort of pedagogical implications. One is that the, um, I'm not sure I've got one on my untidy desk, but, but you know, um, French style textbooks on century by century introductions to literature or dictionaries of literature separate a lot of these um, characters. So, so, I mean, this is, if one has it already in teaching gone a long way beyond the, you know, very, very rigidly century based focus. But I think the century based focus that did dominate a lot of teaching and still does to some extent, I suppose, in, in, in France, for example, and um, is not very friendly to bringing out these often quite long, long durée family, but still very significant family connections. So you, you even get, you know, the same really important writers so like two of the, you know, Bods in, in this book, Vauclin de la Frenet and his son Nicolas Vauclin des It's not at all obvious from work on them, from, from looking at them in dictionary entries, that they are father and son with this incredibly antagonistic relationship. So I think moving away from a century-based focus can help. And also, you know, really as part of the much wider attention to paratexts that book history has taught us to have. I think it's more the other way around that I think that has almost helped me in, in my research be attentive to those. So yeah, if conversely that can then help encourage us all when we're teaching and, and learning to, you know, take the paratexts really, really seriously, um, rather than something to get out of the way before you get to the meat, um, then that, that would be great. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I think we probably should allow everybody else in now. So I'm gonna hand over to, to Wes to um, to help the audience ask their questions. Thank you. Yep, I was on mute. Okay, thanks, Caroline. Uh, don't disappear from the screen, Caroline or Kerry, unless you feel you really need to, because I think questions will come to you as well as to Neil. Um, I think first of all, I'd like to pick up just on a comment in the in the Q and A, which is that in Latin, familia included not only relatives by blood or marriage, but also clients and even slaves. Um, uh, and Neil, you talk about that. Um, John O'Brien and other people's work on the Familia de Montaigne. Um, and I wondered if that was a way of extend or, or approaching Kerry's question about fantasy families. In other words, is there a way in which um, one can think of the family, yes, in relation to blood, but also in relation to service um, and um, patronage and a, a kind of larger network of people because I think that that's also emerging if you like in certainly in early modern uh, publication history I wondered if anybody in the call um, might want to say a bit more about that Kerry or Neil or Caroline Kerry since you brought it up perhaps you could say a thing or two more about that whether yeah there's something called Robertson um, I think it's Richard Robinson Robertson in the 1580s who um, claims 
that various people have inspired our fathers of his work. And his work is absolutely awful. He's a popular writer and he, he writes masses. And he eventually he gets so crossed, um, he, he writes a, um, a tract of all the people he's sent his fantasy work, his, his work to, his fantasy family. Um, and why haven't they given him anything in return? And I wonder that sense of, um, um, I'd very much like not to be part of your family. Thank you very much indeed. That, that um, <sighs> claims to family and family and repudiating bastard sons. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Kerry. Neil, do you want to pick up on that? I, I think it's a really interesting uh, line to pursue. And the, um, um, I, I suppose just to start with pushing back against it a little bit, that in, in this period, people were so obsessed with blood and, and sort of that, that kind of physiological heredity as, as, as part of all this, that, that I, I think that, that, that keeps something quite fairly specific in their kind of minds about blood relations, but that's certainly not the whole story, as 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 as, as you're saying. And um, the the you know the um, thinking for, about these kind of twin pairs. I'll give you some examples of this in the book, where there is a someone is 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 dedicating a book to to a grand person, um, saying, oh, just as my father served your father. So there's a lot of that that goes on. But actually, so there's, there's, a, there's two father-son pairs, but the relationship of, of one pair to the, to the patron pair is actually a filial one as well. So it's, it's, so that it's, it's quite complicated. So that I think does, does prove your point. And another um, a couple of thoughts on that would be for Clément Marvel. So, the, the, you know, really poet to, to whom I devote a lot of um, space in, in, in the book. You know his his relation to his very famous father is is a very off on, you know, imaginary relation off 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 on one. Sometimes really important, sometimes not. Because actually, other father figures come to be more important for him at certain points. Particularly the French king François Premier, very much put in as a quasi father figure. So that so that there's a slippage that's quite easy to make. I think he has no qualms because for his at his social level, it's he's not going to get all he needs from his own father. <laughs> he needs another father and ultimately actually another dimension again would be take a very religious turn when worldly rungs on the ladder have all fallen away it's it's, it's god that takes that, that, mm -hmm. that role as, as well so mm -hmm. i think this can be displaced in multiple directions i quite agree i'm going to take the notion that none of us get all we need from our biological fathers um, away with me from this uh, conversation but um within the chat again there's um uh, a good load of stuff going on about the extension of family into patronage um, and into uh, uh, into other fields. So Jonathan's got a question about patronage and how you might end up, Jonathan Patterson, how you might end up, in a sense, working, producing something for the family to which you're attached. Uh, and even the extension of that to the Famille Francaise, which again is a really interesting example. Gemma Tidman has suggested that a sort of analogy might be um, Voltaire and the patriarch, the patriarch de Ferney, akin to the Johnson question. Um, although, as Gemma points out, um, there it's also about uh, a, a, a contrast with the rival Rousseau. Um, uh, and I mean, that may be true of Johnson as well. There's a, there's a kind of rivalry in, in, in the whole family of Ben um, uh, scene. Um, uh, and that's, yeah, so how, how you might. You, you might signal a father not only for your own sake, but also as, as a rival to another one um, within a kind of competitive um, uh, literary uh, field. Um, I suppose one other question to shift the to come back to the question of gender that again Kerry raised. Um, uh, Jess Allen's asked right at the beginning. Um, um, do, they, do these literary practices produce conventions? Um, uh, who who uses the conventions and is maybe used by them, um, and, and in a way, uh, it might depend on what Jess means here by convention. But certainly, one of the things you show in your book is that satire, for example, um, is one sort of generic convention that emerges from uh, this kind of analysis. Um, let's imagine that that might be what Jess means by convention. Um, in other words, some sense of genre or or, or working within a particular way. And again, do you have a, a notion of, of 
why that why that's useful to think about that, Neil. I think the the, the example of satire that, that Kerry also mentioned yep. really nicely, in a way I find very helpful in relation to illegitimacy is, is a really important one. So as part of the um, the sort of uh, exceptions, very interesting exceptions that prove the rule of when when things are going wrong and sort of turning against um, the, these family frameworks, but also satire has a uh, much more conventional um, role here as emerging from family literature. As in, in one of the um, figures that I mentioned a moment ago, Vauclin uh, de la Frenée, so late 16th century yeah, poet, but also you know, people at the time just to really you know, prominent magistrates and, 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 and local leader. He um, wrote satires that really um, made very clear that, that, that what, what the wrong way to do things socially is what people in other families do, and particularly people in, in, in outside the network of families that I inhabit, of, of magistrates in his part of Normandy and everything. But all the people who are satirized are outside that. So, so it's part of this, um, again, to pick up in a different way on the tribal um, metaphor, it's part of this, this tribal thing that satire is very, it's a very kind of nasty um, genre, really, for, for, for um, excluding people from, from, your, from your tribe, if, if you like. Mm -hmm. um, but but yeah, there are other examples. I, I suppose I'd also then point to, to what Kerry picked up on for conventions about the, the sort of kinds of stuff that tends to be produced as family literature that involves you know, massive scale works, uh, conventions of, of um, cutting and pasting basically from all sorts of previous stuff to make new uses of your family's materials that, have inher that you've inherited. So yeah, a huge number of conventions. Yeah, the bricolage, as Kerry said, and as, as, as you say in your book as well. Um, Jess has sent in a little uh, uh, a kind of clarification. Yes, generic conventions, also modes of address, salon practices, greetings in letters, um, paratexts of various kinds and so on. So, yeah. Um, I also misrepresented Gemma's question slightly, and it might be worth just following through on that, um, because it seems um, uh, the Voltaire-Rousseau competition, if you like, is not so much between two fathers as between a father and a friend. Um, uh, L'Ami Rousseau and Le Patriarque uh, de Voltaire. And again, I just, again, I know that friendship is part of your story and the degree to which somebody refers to, you know, Ami Lecter and so on. And there are a number of examples. I wondered if you wanted to just reflect on, on the sort of friendship question in relation to um, I want to. I don't want to generate too many functions, but we could have the friendship function as well. But there, there's the sort of where's. Wh yeah, have you got a thought on that? I think I, I. I think there's been really good work on on that. That thing, things like, for example, looking at something like well, the the Ulrich Langer's book on the idea of perfect friendship, or or in a more varied way, the um, the the festschrift for or memorial volume for Philip Ford on sodalitas and so on. But, and that's just two examples. I think a lot of really good work that's been done on this. Very often in this homosocial college setting, these alternatives, sort of, and certainly more room for social um, um, difference there as well, I think, within mm -hmm. those, those networks. So, so, so one of the things that interests me, that I think really more work can be done is on certain suspension of social hierarchy that is made possible within friendship and or other uh, situations of familiarity. So notion mm -hmm. of familiar is also, that might can be a temporary suspension. You can trace it to how people address each other. But so one shouldn't be, although I've said everything was hierarchical, you know, there were constant suspensions and, and so on in particular contexts. That's absolutely right. Kerry, you're nodding vigorously now. Do you want to come back in on that question? I'm just thinking about the social conduct books, um, uh, which are circulating in, in England at that time, which are very clear about suspending hierarchy, when to suspend and when to start again, and um, uh, who gives the signal to start or stop. Um, Thank you. Um, as is so often the case in these discussions, questions either anticipate or pick up on something that's already been said. And when you were talking about homosexual colleges, Neil, Jim Reed um, 
has pointed out that colleges can also function as families and that in German a supervisor is your doctor father um, and that this has a kind of after effect. I should know that as Jim was one of my undergraduate uh, tutors, if not my doctor father. Um, but uh, I think, I mean, obviously the world would be a different place if they were Dr. Mutters as well. Um, so the gender question uh, around there is 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 part of that um, too. But it's, it's yeah, it, uh, it, the family, the college as a family is clearly a strong uh, part of the story. But also I think one of the things your book shows or one of the questions you asked is, is this a particular historical moment at which, if you like, the, 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 not all the literary producers are, are sworn to celibacy, where the tonsure is not a kind of a necessary part of, of, of literary uh, practice in the way that it might have been earlier and so on. Um, uh, colleges come to pick up some of that um, uh, dimension. Um, Two more quick questions, I think. And one is from Tom Hamilton, um, who uh, turns us to food instead of, um, well, yeah. He asks, he says, the statistical research underlying the first part of your book is extremely helpful, not only for literary scholars, but also for social historians. Could you reflect on how you decided on your categories of analysis, how you sliced the pie or the Camembert charts? In other words, more generally, did the statistic analysis produce finding that surprised you or changed how you conceived of the project as a whole? Oh, yes, all, all of the above. I mean, I, I, I won't bore you with going through every possible answer to, to Tom's really good question, but for its thanks, Tom. Um, but for example, um, yeah, I, I, I'm I just say in general that for me, this was a new departure um, to go quantitative for part of a project. Um, not at all for the whole of it, but a minority of it in, in terms of pages, but. To, to give that sort of rough, you know, sort of scoping of the terrain. And, and so it's a bit of a shock to do what will be completely familiar to social historians, to have to get really arbitrary with your definitions. Well, not arbitrary, but very pre precise of your definitions. Because if you're going to count something, you have to count and know that you're counting the same thing. And therefore you lay yourself open to all kinds of um, charges from literary bods such as me normally of saying, well, this definition doesn't hold up. You have to define a work, you have to define what France is, um, you have to define the degree of certainty with which you're um, classifying someone socially, you have to define how you're classifying them socially, whether they're the top, middle or bottom of the nobility, so that comes down to a, to, to a sum, a monetary sum as well. So all of that you have to do. So I'll simply say that, that that's you know a, a new thing for me and it made me much more sympathetic to people who have to do that. And, and less likely to pick their, their definitions apart because the payoff is you do get this rough picture that emerges. But of course, one doesn't then stand by the absolute truth of the definition in relation to any particular case because things are always then more, more interesting when you get into the detail, the singular detail. Thank you, Neil. So we've got, we're running out of time, but we've got one quick question, which uh, Sabrina Hogan asks and says, is there time for this? Did you come across any twin writers or families with twins? And this is an interest in, in the, uh, the, the uh, she has in this specific genetic phenomenon in, uh, but yeah, are twins part of your story? Oh, I need to, need, to, need to have a look. I think they are, but are they brothers or twins? There's this, um, sorry, I can't remember. Wes was saying just when we started that I, that I might not be able to remember everything in it. Anyway, there's, there's one you know, quite extreme case of these two brothers, possibly twins, who called the Chevalier Vigneux, who, who, what's so extreme about them is that they, in the late 16th century, they um, produced these tra volumes translating um, Virgil and, and Horace. And um, there's no indication of um, dividing them up other than as, as, a, as, a, as a unit. Even the Desroches, mother-daughter, you know which poem is by which, but this is mm -hmm. actually, there's no indication who did who did what. And they are very slightly differentiated, one or two descriptions, but they're basically in, in, in represented as an indivisible unit. They may be twins, but I'm afraid I, I, I'd have to go back to check. Caroline, were you nodding your head as if to say, I know the answer to this or just, um, it's, no, okay. Um, well, uh, I think we've, yeah, we've roamed and ranged um, over all sorts of exciting um, areas from cognitive gadgets to cognitive ethnography through to um, the terrific example of the sad family. We could have spent a good hour talking about that alone, I think. Um, 
But so um, many, many thanks um, both to Kerry and to Caroline for their rich and imaginative and critical, um, and as Neil says, sometimes laugh out loud, but also really profound um, responses uh, to Neil's book. And of course, many thanks to Neil for writing it in the first place. Um, uh, I think to take up the pedagogy question that Caroline asked, I really do think this is, you know, that we'll think differently about authorship and about how to teach things um, as a result of, of this work. Um, and indeed of your larger study that you're engaged in, Neil, you know, collaborative study about literature and social function. And it may not seem like this is, uh, in the jargon, terribly relevant work, but of course it really is, because it is absolutely about um, the, the sort of the role and the power of education and of literary work um, within uh, within the social structure. So thank you all um, very much indeed one more time. And thank you also for to our several uh, many punters who turned up, listened, added their questions, um, or even uh, were there um, just listening along. Oh, you've disappeared from screens. Thanks again. Um, before I, before we finish, I just want to say that the, um, the next book at lunchtime is in two weeks time on Wednesday, the 9th of June, same time. And we'll be discussing um, uh, the uh, a book edited by Abigail Green and Simon Levis-Sulam called Jews, Liberalism, Antisemitism, A Global History. Do come back in a couple of weeks time if you can. Uh, many thanks again for being here and goodbye. <laughs>